Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Well, good morning, and thank you very much to uh, everyone who's joining us for this call, uh, kind of trying to sort of make sense and digest uh, yesterday's spending review and budget um, uh, as presented by Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor here in the UK. Um, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by uh, several of my colleagues um, from the Global Council team. Uh, we've got our Senior uh, Practice Lead for Financial Services, Rebecca Park. Uh, we have our Lead Analyst for UK Politics and Policy, Joe Armitage. And we have our Senior Associate for UK Politics and Policy, Lila Housen smith um, My name is Alex Dawson. I'm the Practice Lead for uh, UK Politics and Policy as well. Uh, and um, today uh, we will be, uh, as I say, uh, running through uh, what we should read and what we should take from uh, the first significant spending review really in five years in the UK and probably the first budget that Rishi Sunak feels he's been able to give without the uh, spectre of an imminent lockdown uh, hanging over him, although obviously more on that later. Um, so look, we, 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 we had a, uh, I mean, I think effectively, if you sort of look at the sort of the, 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 the kind of economist story and the political story of the spending review and the budget yesterday, um, you, you get a picture of a chancellor that is spending a large chunk of money uh, that is backed up by improved growth forecasts uh, from the Office for Budget Responsibility, um, but is also padded out by some significant tax rises not announced yesterday, announced unusually uh, the month before uh, with the national insurance increase and then also the very significant increase in corporation tax uh, and um, money raised out of income tax uh, threshold freezes uh, back in the spring budget. Um, so that's kind of the, the political and the fiscal story and we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about I suppose where frankly the politics of this lands. But I think first really we want to address and want to focus on what this budget means for business and what business should take from, uh, from the announcements yesterday and probably some of the more kind of um, the more technical changes that won't necessarily be at the front of your newspapers this morning. Um, so Becca, I just want to turn first to you. I mean, you, you deal with uh, our financial services clients and uh, deal with financial services issues for a range of other clients. What's your read on it? And what's, I suppose, to an extent, kind of what are you hearing and what's their take uh, on what was announced yesterday? Thanks very much, Alex. And almost to continue your kind of opening comments, which is for, for businesses, I think in many respects, this budget didn't contain the real meat and detail and content and substantive announcements that we saw back in the spring. So in the same way we saw major tax increases a month ago, actually from a business perspective, much of the, the really totemic stuff of Rishi Sunak's kind of recovery plan to so the corporation tax increase, the super deduction tax arrangements were all announced back in the spring. And I don't think there is, a, from a business perspective, anything as significant in this budget as we saw in there. But from an overall business perspective, I think, you know, it feels fairly balanced, but probably with a, a, a heavy dose of disappointment for certain sectoral issues and certain sectoral areas where we were either the subject of a government review going into this budget, and therefore they were hoping either for a firm answer, a clear commitment about the next steps and direction of travel, or potentially a, a slightly different approach. And I think across a few areas, we've potentially not seen the sort of changes that, that many in business were hoping for. So... You know, for example, the online sales tax continues to be something the government's going to consult on, and there's a further commitment to consult on the arrangements 
um, for that. Now that has upsides and downsides depending on, on sectors of where you're operating. But I think a sense that actually that that has not yet gone away, even with the broader kind of global tax changes is sort of source of disappointment for some firms operating in this space. Likewise, um, you're going to have to forgive me for talking about financial services, but um, yeah, the corporation do. tax surcharge for me feels like a really interesting um, case study for sort of how the government is seeking to potentially address or manage some of these relationships and conversations. So back in the spring, we had the Chancellor commit to a corporation tax increase and therefore announce a review of this 8% surcharge paid by the banking sector. That was genuinely interpreted across the industry as an opportunity to finally address bank taxation post the post-crisis reforms of the bank levy and the surcharge. And privately, through the last six months, we've seen the Treasury sort of engage with industry and suggest that the review could be potentially substantive, potentially meaningful. And there seems to have been a disconnect at times between Treasury's desire to show the industry it's heard them on competitiveness and wants to do more to, to focus on city competitiveness beyond just its regulatory framework review, at the same time as, as balance the politics of anything that could be perceived of a reduction in bank taxation, which gives an immediate opportunity, as we saw yesterday, for the opposition to package this up as a, as a bank tax. very notable line about... Um... You know, bankers sipping champagne on their uh, domestic flights up to Edinburgh, for instance, will be laughing all the way to the bank. Uh, it was quite a telling ta attack, considering that actually banks are exactly. still paying more in terms of corporation tax. And it's an attack that she went out with again this morning um, on broadcast as well. And I think that they've managed to create a scenario whereby, from a political perspective, it's packaged up as a bank tax reduction and Labour can use that. And from a business perspective, actually, you've just seen your tax increase by 1%. It's a £200 million a year increase in bank taxation forecasts. It feels like a, a sort of a political mismatch in terms of both expectation management for business and how you sell it more broadly to the media. And I think actually, if you are a business looking at this budget, looking at that challenge and then looking and reflecting on your own sectoral reviews that are happening, and thinking about the consequences of that and the political realities of it. Because if you are pushing the government for something that's going to be politically difficult to deliver from a levelling up perspective, from a broader media perspective, from a parliamentary Labour Party perspective, I wouldn't expect big changes. Or really, you're going to have to think about how you manage that and, and work with government. Because I think what we did see here was a disconnect between the conversation, the dialogue privately and publicly. I mean, I do think it's kind of interesting in terms of sort of that, that final point that you made there about sort of... Um... Uh, businesses relationship with government because you know when you sort of you know I think that the, the Treasury certainly kind of and people around the Treasury certainly give off the vibe of uh, well you know obviously there are going to be some things that are tricky for business and some things that are going to be better for business but look at what we've done in this budget we've increased um, huge amount of spending on skills made a certain amount of reforms and tweaks um, potentially to a skills allocation allocation of skill spending which has been a big business ask for a number of years uh, we have actually cut seven billion pounds of the business rates bill and that that impacts businesses small and large um, obviously there's been an important sort of chunk of the economy that has been arguing for a cut in business rates paid for by an online sales tax they will then also say uh, at the spring budget we um, we made a huge tax cut the biggest in british history and it was focused on businesses in terms of the super deduction yet we never hear any praise from business um uh, kind of coming out from that i mean now now that is obviously because business is not monolithic it is not generic and uh whether you benefit from this or not depends on the amount of plant and machinery you have um uh, being developed um uh and which you can kind of claim reliefs back on but i think that kind of points to two things firstly that the treasury is going to push back on arguments that 
um, uh, business hasn't been given enough. I think it says that actually uh, often the conversation between government and business is too generic and it probably should be more about the treasury and the sector or the individual business and making arguments about that. Um, and I think I kind of, I think sort of what struck me as well was the, I think one of the most significant lines from my part, from my point of view and kind of the stuff that seems to accord most um, with the conversations I have around Westminster and Whitehall um, when you talk about the treasury was the line from Rishi Sunak where he says, do we want to live in a country where the response to every question is, what is the government going to do about it? Um, and, uh, you know, I think sort of in terms of the interaction that people on this call have with government, I think thinking about that and thinking about what the kind of the response answer is, well, government should do this, but actually business, we can do, we can do something different. Um, it's probably going to be the sort of thing that helps you sort of open that, open that dialogue with the Treasury that may result in a slightly kind of uh, better set of figures in the future. But we, we will, I'm sure we will come back to this. Um, there, there's, there's been obviously a huge amount of conversation about levelling up. If um, people were lucky enough to be able to go to Manchester, the Conservative Party conference, as many of us on this call were, um, uh, levelling up and building back better was adorned all over this fine city. Um, but, you know, as ever, I suppose, it's kind of what do the numbers say when you look at the, the budget documents in black and white? And, and what was there in the budget about levelling up. Joe, could I bring you in here? This is obviously something that you work on a, a great deal. You've actually been on secondment for a period this year in the government. Um, what's your reflections on what happened, uh, what was announced yesterday? Well, I think you know, I say a number of things. The first is that there was an expectation, certainly earlier in the year, the levelling up white paper would be published uh, alongside this budget and spending review, and that did not happen. Uh, equally, there was an expectation of the integrated rail plan. You know, this is making huge billion pound decisions on rail in Midlands, in the North, et cetera. That was not forthcoming. So these huge, and I'd, I'd echo Becker's point on, on, a, on a lack of substance in relation to these sorts of issues. You know, these are huge decisions that were not made uh, and they have been postponed. And instead, what you've got is a series of pots of money which add up to, you know, multi-billion pounds, but they are being spread across the country. It's a bit like jam spreading. Uh, and, and, and that's sort of a, a term in, in the treasury, you know, you either opt for jam spreading, which is more sort of politically oriented, you know, the UK Share Prosperity Fund, the Towns Fund, the Leveling Up Fund, you know, it amounts to, you know, about five billion pound or so. But if you start to divide it between 450 or so local authorities, you know, it's about 30 million pounds. And that's not necessarily going to create uh, the, the, the seeds or plant the seeds uh, for growth sectors for those sort of five to, to six big sort of technology bets to really attract uh, investment and act as magnets. I suppose that kind of does get into the interesting question of what the definition of levelling up is, because for some it's you have, you know, kind of semi-dirigist state-led investment in five, six, seven, eight areas or a few sectors um, sort of strategically placed around the country, um, or you have, um, or on the other end of it, and potentially we're looking at a slider somewhere in the middle, it is about regenerating the local high street in, you know, I was going to say Stoke Poges, but I mean, I'm sure Stoke Poges High Street is absolutely delightful considering where it is in the country. But, um, you know, if we think about some of the seats that the Conservatives won for the first time in the last election in, um, you know, Haywood and Middleton, just south of Manchester, or Workington, which has obviously been a big focus of political debate for the last few years, 
It's an example of the sort of uh, red wall constituency that the Tories won. And mm-hmm. it sounds like with this, that they are kind of um, pushing more towards, yeah, kind of a, you know, regenerating the high street, trying to bring a bit more retail back into, back into it. Um, well, yeah, uh, yeah, certainly, you know, levelling up a high street uh, is not going to create sort of knowledge agglomerations and attract, you know, future industries to those areas. You know, if you if you attract those sorts of industries, you know, of the future, these nascent technologies, you know, to new parts of, of, of the country, you know, parts of Midlands, uh, parts of, of, of um, Northwest um, England, etc., you're going to potentially unlock growth uh, and and the high streets will take care of themselves but instead you know it's more politically oriented uh, and, and i think you know you can argue that that is wise for the for the chancellor to pursue but i think you know businesses uh in in these sorts of you know life sciences etc will probably be dismayed that the r&d target for example has been shelved you know it's been postponed by a year that saved the government two billion pounds to spend on other issues but you know nonetheless in the round you know you are seeing the substance with respect to leveling up in terms of actually what the country is going to notice you know arguably not really in favor of business but more in favor of sort of political consumer politics i mean albeit without trying to channel the the or be the treasury voice in the room you know i mean they would also make the argument that the cloud computing uh, change is quite significant um that's still just having the 2.4 percent target and the fact that yes 22 billion target has been delayed somewhat um, is a, you know, I think they're kind of fairly sort of uh, fairly open about that, but um, there's still quite a significant chunk of money going in. And actually in terms of those tax credit changes, it is about um, unleashing some of the private R and D spend, which is required to hit the target. I just say on on, on that though, you know, you've seen the the global Britain investment funds, you know, it's 1.4 billion pounds, uh, pot of money, you know, for areas like um, autonomous vehicle, well, not autonomous, but uh, electric uh, vehicle production, etc. But, you know, a lot of that money is just repackaged, you know, pots of money, such as the Auto Transformation Fund, you know, it's just been rolled into this Global Britain Investment well, Fund. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of smoke all, I mean, it's a demonstration of the uh, Sturm and Drang kind of uh, effect that the Treasury has in terms yeah. of setting the terms of debate for a whole week in government um, and getting everyone to kind of pay attention to what they want to show off. But sort of maybe smuggling some of the detail into the uh, into the, the, the bowels of the red book. I mean, uh, Lila, can I just bring you in on this point about, you know, where is the vision for, for clusters, for high tech growth? I mean, you do a lot of work on net zero. How do you read that? You know, do you think that's fair? Do you think that's unfair? We talk yeah, a lot about I, free ports, you know, what is the budget I, fair about this? So I think that is fair. I think again, so the green uh, the uh, the global investment fund was also repackaged to fund some new sort of hydrogen and CCUS investment. Um, more broadly on net zero, I think we learned sort of two things about the chancellor's approach to net zero from yesterday. The first is that he's still not prepared to really use all the fiscal levers at his disposal to mobilise. Um, capital towards net zero. So that's why you've kind of obviously had had fuel G, fuel duty has been frozen again, even though the 11th year of the freeze. And um, also you've not really got any movement on carbon pricing. But secondly, there are gonna be areas where for the chancellor, other priorities trump net zero. So um, you obviously had the, had the cut of um, APD on short haul flights. And fundamentally that's because 
there's an argument he would like to make about regional connectivity and, and the union, um, which um, sort of fa favours that cut. But ultimately, there was still something on, on net zero in terms of the green investment relief, which shows a little bit of appetite to the, connect. This is the, the, the tax relief on business rate. So the, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it shows a bit of appetite to connect the tax system to our net zero goals. But ultimately, this isn't a kind of whole system approach as the government would kind of like us to believe from its net zero strategy last week. And I think that's probably because there's still a view, particularly in the tre Treasury, that you know, that can come over time that we want to be quite politically fine tuned in our actions as it is. Um, and, and we can't move too quick on, on, on this stuff. But I mean, the interesting thing is where, where money was allocated, the primary focus was on industrial decarbonisation and, and, and things like CCUS, as, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, but just to kind of pick up on your point about sort of, you know, it didn't have everything in the budget that, that kind of might be required, didn't give us all the answers. I mean, Surely this is a kind of a, you know, a long running TV series in the style of succession rather than a, you know, a two hour blockbuster. And actually, if you want to sort of get the answers on some of these big questions and big problems, whether it's leveling up or how you deliver net zero, uh, actually kind of securing political consent and actually sort of binding in um, people into the development of those answers is going to be quite an important job. I mean, it strikes me kind of from, from when I used to work in government, um, the Treasury was uh, constantly worried about the fact that it couldn't raise any tax, um, it couldn't do anything on income tax, it couldn't do anything on NICS. Uh, it had got a level of corporation tax, which was low, but didn't necessarily drive um, investment. Uh, they were concerned about, you know, the net zero target was, you know, was a, was a figment of everyone's kind of imagination or twinkle in certain people's eyes, but wasn't actually reality. Um, the whole kind of levelling up agenda was, you know, fell between a couple of stools around um, industrial strategy, uh, but there was still a big tension about what the Conservative Party would do with, you know, transitioning from its um, uh, sort of Remain-ish base in the southeast into winning big majorities built around the rest of England and Scotland. And actually, if you look at how the policy and the politics of this developed over the last three, four, five years, well, you know, income tax, actually, they're now able to kind of raise a bit more cash from it. Corporation tax, they've been able to increase, but put in more in the terms of allowances, albeit a great cost by a super deduction. Leveling up is obviously, you know, a mix of jam spreading of kind of making sure that your high street in Workington is um, wonderfully well appointed while making sure there are kind of carbon capture and storage clusters built around conservative mayors who've been elected in the Northeast. I mean, what, what does strike me uh, is that, and what I'm uncertain about, is whether this is an example, high spending, high taxing. Um, we have someone in the chat talking about whether this is a, a return to uh, Heathite era of sales demand conservatism, which is high tax, high spend, and which will sort of ultimately see the government kind of consigned to the dustbin of history. Um, I don't know whether this is kind of do as I say, not as I do, when the Chancellor talks about the importance of cutting tax. Um, or whether he was genuinely using this moment as a pivot point to shift to um, to kind of clear the docket, as it were, of all the requirements and all the kind of the uh, you know the political pressure that was on him to increase spending in the wake of the 2019 manifesto, in the wake of COVID, um, and actually from now on he'll be a reformed man and money will go into tax cuts 
Um, and we will sort of see that vision of Rishi Sunak, the, the Californian hedge funder, uh, coming through to transform the UK's productivity. I mean, Joe, kind of what's your view on it? And then I'd love to hear from Becca as well. Um, sorry, what, 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 were you, what was the... I suppose the question is like, should we, should we, should we expect, um, you know, the budgets in 2022, 2023 to continue more of this high tax spend um, positioning, or should we believe Rishi Sunak when he says he wants to cut taxes from now on? And yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, he, 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 Sunak made an interesting comment to the 1922 committee, which is sort of the committee of every Conservative MP after the budget, which was a sort of private meeting. And he said that you know, every marginal pound you know, in future, con considering, you know, the growth trajectories are pretty good, you know, if we do achieve 6.5%, you know, and then 6% in the next year, you know, if that happens, if that transpires, uh, then every marginal pound will be spent on tax cuts. You know, and you have to somewhat sympathise for Sunak. You know, he's, he's quite fiscally right wing uh, and he wants to be a low tax conservative. And the only reason why the tax take is so high, you know, obviously there has been the NICS increase. The only reason why it's so high is because inflation is high and obviously the government collects more tax if inflation is high. And it's, it's sort of 46 percent in terms of the overall tax take, and it used to be about 43% uh, prior to the pandemic. So I think, you know, you've got to sympathise with him in, in that respect. But I think, you know, he's, he's signalled politically that every future pound at his disposal, if there is, you know, no series of black swan events uh, on the horizon that, you know, eclipse his mission, you know, every future pound will be spent on tax cuts. Um, and so you can imagine, you know, that, that would be quite favourable uh, for Conservative MPs, you know, before an election uh, to say, you know, not only have we got, you know, our high streets, uh, spruced up uh, with some new lampposts, etc. Um, but we've also um, got uh, these these tax cuts, um, and 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 that would be welcome. I, mean, I suppose it's quite cakeist if you sort of want to compare him to his boss. Yeah, you know, ha having a cake of high spending but eating it by the promise of future low taxes. I mean, Becca, sort of, uh, I'd be interested in your point of view on this, and sort of particularly that issue that Joe raised about inflation and kind of cost of living crises. Absolutely. I mean, I think. As to whether we can really believe Rishi Sunak that this is the moment that he wants to take and, you know, he's really going to, to live by that commitment to 1922, I think probably depends on three factors for him over, over the next couple of years. One of which is the political discourse between HMT and um, Number 10. You know, so much of this budget and we've all watched the tensions between Number 10's desire to spend and make commitments. But frankly, there are still a lot of important political decisions left on the table that haven't been taken. Um, depending on the decisions that are made, particularly around net zero, particularly on things like when do we set certain dates for home heating transition and certain decisions around carbon in the economy, and then the significant cost that's going to deliver to the public and private sector will probably determine part of Sunak's ability to deliver this. And I think the second feature is going to be the strength of the recovery. You know, this week's budget was largely on the strength of really strong ABR yeah. projections and a sense that the economic recovery will come through in a positive light. But actually... Whether that, that flows in reality, whether there are going to be further consequences of, of winter COVID measures or further economic challenges, or even just looking at what the consequences of rolling off furlough, sea bills lending, bounce back loans lending, you know, the repayment levels look good right now, but are they still going to look good in three to six months times? Or are we going to see some real sectoral crunch areas where actually those businesses didn't come back and therefore the cost to the exchequer and the broader cost of the economy could be significant? I think that's going to sort of impact. And then thirdly as well, I think looking at inflation and cost of living challenges around this space, you know, the, the budget started yesterday with an entire section in the budget speech on inflation. I can't remember watching a budget with that much focus for 
a long time now. And secondly, the, the acceptance of that through the budget documents, through the MPC remit letter, actually, there is a realisation that interest rates are probably going to have to increase to manage cost of living. That impacts government spending, impacts the cost of borrowing. And there's, we're going to start seeing significant sort of movements in the market there. We already saw the gilt markets respond quite strongly yesterday to much bigger cuts in the red book than we expected. And therefore, I think we have to start looking at how those three elements impact Sunak's desire. I don't think we can question his commitment to that statement, but whether he's going to be in a political or economic position to deliver on it in the next 18 months is going to be challenging. I mean, there's always an Ozymandian element to budgets, where it's look at my power, ye mighty, in despair, um, as the desert winds sweep across the fallen statue of uh, King Ozymandias. And I think that's always kind of a feature with actually budgets, is it's a, it's a point in time, and I think this lot actually do a fairly good job of um, signaling decisions and trying to like make sure that they kind of take the political decision at the time when they can actually deliver it, you know, a la sort of what you're seeing with levelling up being delayed until December when they can actually work out what levelling up actually means and how to de deliver on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately, they're kind of, uh, at, you know, fate is in the hands of um, sort of probably wider issues that uh, they're not in control of. I mean, I just kind of want to sort of bring in, obviously, sort of something that kind of people who are particularly passionate about, um, uh, kind of the, the, I suppose the, the the Brexit debate are kind of highlighting at the moment, um, which is that the the longer term scarring of Brexit is judged by the OBR to be actually larger than the longer term scarring of um, uh, of the COVID crisis. I mean, Lila, kind of what was your, I mean, what's your take on the kind of the government's fairly sort of unapologetic sort of uh, embrace of the Brexit decision that it chose and the Brexit path that it's kind of negotiated with the European Union? So I think as the government sees it, there are sort of two things still in play there, um, which could mean that the OBR's kind of slight warning on this could prove to be wrong. The first is the government hasn't really got started with its sort of regulatory divergence and change agenda from um, following Brexit. Ultimately, that's been halted a bit by COVID and a bit by these wider disagreements and continuing um, issues over the protocol. But clearly, they think there are some gains, possible gains to be made there. They also think that, that, that while the NI protocol issues aren't resolved, you can't really make an assessment of the economic impact, um, both in terms of kind of business uncertainty and in terms of the, the specific impacts that's having on um, having on um, imports and export flows. So I think those, they would see, as they would see it, there are still those kind of two ongoing issues. And once those are resolved, fine, we may take a view that we need to do more. But for now, um, we can suggest that, that those two th things are still in play. And actually there's potentially a lot more to, to gain than that is being kind of priced in by the, by the OBR forecasts. And also, I think there was a kind of a, you know, th th there was a bit of an argument kind of running through the, running through the budget that sort of, you know, it was the democratic decision of the British people. It was finally delivered after years of dithering and we've all got to get on with it. Um, and it's notable that kind of, you know, even Rachel Reeves, um, you know, felt that at some points that she had to kind of lean into, uh, I can't, I can't, for the life of me, I apologize for this, I remember specifically what it was, but at one point she sort of mentioned something about a, sort of a positive take from Brexit which obviously got the Tory backbenchers roaring, but I think is um, probably a sort of necessary move potentially from a Labour Chancellor, which needs to win back Brexit supporters um, who, who might have gone over to the Conservatives uh, at the last election. Um, 
the, I mean, just to, just on Labour, um, I mean, there, there's been a kind of a great deal of sort of complacency. Um, uh, I, I've been reminded by a colleague of mine that it was VAT on energy bills uh, and that the government um, should have cut VAT on energy bills, which would have been a, uh, a power uh, that they could have taken uh, thanks to the Brexit deal they negotiated. So thank you to my very, very kind and attentive colleagues there. Um, what do we think... Um, you know, there, there, there's a great deal of sort of a smugness uh, in certain parts of the Tory party at the moment about um, the uh, party's ability to win elections. And they look at Keir Starmer uh, and they think that they'll knock him into a cocked hat at the next election. Um, I would also point out, though, that the kind of the current poll lead for the Tories is down to four points. And even with uh, boundary changes potentially coming through before the next election, that uh, might not be enough for a significant majority. Um, Becca, I mean, what was your view on the uh, kind of the Labour response to the budget? I, I mean, I think in many respects, um, there's not much in this budget to sell on the doorstep. And I think for Labour, that's the that's where we've seen them really focus on the response, this idea that actually um, there are a lot of small changes. There are a lot of small commitments, as, as Joe pointed out, when you start spreading the levelling up fund into multiples of commitments that kind of lead to tens or hundreds of millions. That becomes a very fragmented narrative to, to talk about on the doorstep. It can, becomes very hard to often tell the value of those initiatives and those changes, particularly when a lot of them are focused on, on SME and business development and business investment. And therefore, the headline focuses on, on events and budgets like this tend to be on the, the sort of the, the direct consequences. So that the changes to UC and the taper and those arrangements. And actually, I think the way that Labour is unpicking that sort of in direct comparison to the loss of the, the kind of the temporary UC increase during the pandemic, for me, feels to be the probably the one piece this is kind of getting the most cut through right now across the media and in terms of how kind of it's being interpreted. I know the Times ran some uh, focus groups live last night, um, yesterday afternoon and through in the evening um, in red wall seats looking at the impact of the budget. And certainly on face value on day one, that interpretation was very much, there's not much in here for me. Actually, I'm concerned about people on low incomes or people who aren't yet working who won't be impact, who won't be benefited by this budget. And that seems to be sort of coming through in that initial analysis. Now, it's still too early to tell. We all know this. We've all seen budgets unravel or strengthen over the following week to 10 days, depending on how they're interpreted and picked in the media. But I do think this is a stopgap budget that is very much being landed in the middle of a political cycle rather than a budget seeking to necessarily win specific electoral gains right now. And that certainly feels to be the initial narrative coming through. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Conservatives are going to win many votes on the basis of a cheaper bottle of Asti Spamanti, uh, which was obviously kind of a large focus of the speech yesterday was on reforms to alcohol duty, where it, it, it all felt like kind of a sort of set up leading up to a punchline, but which never quite came, I suppose. Um, my perspective it felt quite unusual um just in terms of sort of things that people notice and recognize we've obviously got next week cop 26 beginning um i mean you mentioned it earlier lila how are they going to square cutting apd for short-haul flights up to glasgow um uh, when we've got this uh big big event which is going to be quite important for um setting out how we actually deliver on the net zero target by 2050 yeah, but they're going to point to the fact that they're increasing APD on long haul flights. The interesting thing that we saw in the um, in the scorecard, though, was actually this will be a net loss um, to the Treasury, regardless of whatever way they cut it. So the interesting thing is that they were prepared to use 
political capital to, to make that cut to APD in spite of the kind of cost of it. I think they'll still be feeling pretty confident going into um, COP, given that the net zero strategy released last week, whatever the kind of specific criticisms of it, did provide a pretty comprehensive assessment of how they will both meet um, the next carbon budget, but also obviously the interim targets um, and net zero target in advance of that. And when you compare it to what other countries have put forward in advance of COP, it goes kind of well and beyond um, a lot of other sort of our European neighbours. Also think that the CCC um, assessment of it this week will have given um, the government some confidence. They, That's they the climate change committee. Yeah, that? exactly. They basically welcomed it and said that it was pretty they did a sort of direct comparison of the kind of measures that they would have been advocating as an independent organization just looking purely at the net zero target and they felt that it was comprehensive i think the missing piece and the potential for it to unravel is both on this um is is on is both on the kind of fiscal side how quickly is the treasury going to move to link up the tax system to these green changes that are required but also on heatings and buildings where as becca's mentioned there's still not huge amount of clarity about when certain bits of regulation are going to hit, kick in and really how people are going to make that transition away from gas boilers um all well and good that we've seen this pot of subsidy allocated but there, there are still a huge number of households who, where that's just not going to quite um well, come off it is the treasury you know also relying on the market and relying on market incentives in order to drive some of this um and you know, I suppose it kind of uh, reflects on the fact that Rishi Sunak can't can't command the economy to to transition to net zero. Look, um, we've we've run over time, um, and I'm very very grateful to all the people who've stuck with us uh, throughout this. Um, obviously, if you have any questions, please do get in touch uh, with your with your client lead. Um, uh, and uh, in the meantime, uh, we will, uh, I'm sure, be sending you lots of information analysis um, and highlights from COP26. I think the key points that you should uh, recognize and um, reflect upon. Uh, and obviously it, the events yesterday all point to a pretty packed domestic agenda in the UK um, for us to consider as we start to look ahead to what I'm sure will be another fiscal event um, well, next year, potentially even in the spring. Um, thank you very much. Uh, it's been uh, wonderful speaking to you all and take care. Goodbye. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.